I'm happy to address you here at a Bible college because you're here to hear about the Bible. And the Bible is full of amazing, amazing stories. Let me tell you one today. <clears throat> the old man had an unhurried air about him, leisurely even. The air of a person who knows where he's going and who he is. His long white beard and his tall staff gave him an aura of wisdom and authority. And he was headed for this little village called Bethlehem. And maybe it was the boys that were out in the fields looking for Canaanite arrowheads or something, but somebody saw him coming, ran and told the elders, Samuel's coming. And they were scared because Samuel was not known for casual visits to a village for no reason. He was the judge of Israel. And so they came out trembling, wondering, what have we done wrong? But that turned to joy and anticipation. He says, I've come to have a feast with you. A religious feast. So they ran and they slaughtered the, the heifer and they had the special feast and they sat down for the feast. Yes, uh, Samuel uh, had come for a feast, but there was another reason he had come, which they did not know about. And that was, he was looking for a new king for Israel. And he'd been directed to come here. And so he asked one of the leading families of the, the town there, would you bring your sons before me? I'd like to examine your sons. And so he brought out the first one. Eliab, tall, handsome, the firstborn, very impressive. And God said to him, no, Samuel, that's not the next king. Next son. Nope. Next one. Nope. Seven sons. And uh, Samuel seems to be a little bit uh, wondering, okay, am I losing my prophetic edge? I know I'm getting older here. <laughs> this is Bethlehem, isn't it? And, and you're Jesse, right? And, well, don't you have any more sons? Well, actually, yeah, he did have one more son. And uh, the dad said, but he, he's just the baby of the family. In Hebrew, Hakaton, just the youngest one. No name even. Well, you know, he's the youngest one. And he's, he's kind of artsy. He, he's forever playing on his harp. He loves writing songs, and he's writing a really long one right now. <laughs> but Samuel said, well, bring him in. And when he came in, God said, that's the man. And so we have the anointing of David. And it says in the scripture that the Spirit of God came upon him mightily from that day on. And so begins the story of one character in the Bible that we know more about than any other. There is more detail about David and all that he did than any other. We read of David fighting, David cursing, David hiding, sinning, repenting, dancing, loving, hating, praying. We know lots of detail about this guy. And it's highly significant that the person in the Bible that shows us most about how to live spiritually in the midst of real life was a layman, not a priest. Interesting. And the choice of David, the youngest of the family, the shepherd boy, to be a representative of how God works well amongst people is 
good news. It means that God can use you. Maybe you're the youngest. Don't even have a name in some people's minds. You're just the one that does the chores. You're the ordinary person. Well, perfect. God loves ordinary people. And you as Prairie students are here at Bible school, and I want to commend Prairie that uh, you are all going to study the entire Bible in seven core courses. The Bible is full of stories. And they're very earthy stories. As you read your Bible, you'll find out that it talks about people like shepherds and farmers and families and the fights that they get into and plowing and harvest and wars and kings and, and all these very seemingly ordinary human experiences revealing how God works. And the Bible is a series of smaller stories that all fit together into this larger story of God. They're all like different colored threads that make this beautiful tapestry. And your story matters too. It's a little story, it's a little thread, but your story is part of this tapestry. Your story matters. The stories in the Old Testament and the New are important to delve into and to imagine them and live them with the characters because you can learn a ton about life if you will enter into the Bible stories and imagine you're there. And I want to invite you to do that. Now, David was Israel's greatest king. And even though there are many kings... None of them receives the attention like David does. So I'd like to walk you through his life in this, uh, this morning session here and see if there might be some things that might enter into your life or might reflect in your life. So we begin the story of David, and it's the story of rags to riches. You know, when you study birth order, you wouldn't expect the youngest one to become the greatest leader. He was the one that was given the chores that no one else wanted. And maybe that's happened to you. You were kind of pushed to the side or given stuff that other people didn't want to do. What did David do about that? Well, he didn't allow the natural position in his family to lock him into insignificance. No. In fact, it was when he was a teenager that he went to visit his brothers in the battle and had this great encounter with Goliath. And that dramatic encounter and the courage that he showed with that giant strengthened him and thrust him into the next major phase of his life. Because as soon as that happened, he became a military leader. That single victory just launched him into fame. And news of his great feet spread like wildfire throughout Israel so that when he came back from the battle, the women had already composed a song about him. A song because he was the hero of Israel. They were so thrilled with him. But the ruling king was not so happy about this popularity. He was quite intimidated by the fact that Samuel, uh, that uh, David was so popular, and uh, he became jealous of David. 
Maybe that's happened to you. Maybe your good success stirred up some jealousy from someone else. Could be. Happened to David, could happen to you. How did you handle the jealousy of other people? Well, David had to flee the palace because Saul was so jealous, he was trying to kill David. And that launched David into his next phase, David the refugee. For the next 15 years, he'd hide in caves for his life. It was so dangerous for his family that he had to take his mom and dad and move them to a foreign country. It's amazing that success can bring unanticipated problems. You know, if I was David at this point, I might have thought, hey, God, I thought I was anointed to be the next king of Israel. And I have been faithful to serve you. I went out as a good military general and I proved myself. I got victories for Israel. And uh, is this what I get for being faithful, becoming a refugee? You know, God, if, if anointing means this, maybe, maybe I don't want anointing because this is not fun. Well, David didn't act like I might have. <laughs> Thankfully, he refused to allow the unjust turn of events to make him sour. He did, though, pour his heart out to God in very dramatic language about because he was upset about it, too. But he refused to allow others' injustice to make him bitter. So, what do you do in ancient Israel when you have to run from the authorities? What you do is you hide out in the wilderness because this is the place that no one wants to be. Except some shepherds that graze their sheep there on the pathetic little grass that grows briefly after a rain, they will take their sheep out there and the shepherds know that where the, the pastures are. Now, David was a shepherd boy. And here he is hiding in the wilderness, and he knew what these shepherds people were dealing with. One of the big problems was something that today we would call cattle rustling. Maybe in, in David's day it was like sheep busting. But people would steal the sheep. And so what David did is he would guard the sheep and keep the, the criminals away and make sure that there was no sheep busting going on. And in appreciation for that, the people would give him food. That's how he managed. Well, news about the fact that David, the great giant killer, the wonderful general in Saul's army, was in the wilderness, spread. That news spread. And people began to join him out in the wilderness. Now, these were not the pick of the crop, though. These were people, like David, who are running from something. So some of these people that came to be with David were badly in debt. And they were running away from their debt. Others were murderers. And they were literally running for their life. And some of them were political dissidents. Not welcome in Israel or maybe even in their other country. He had some of the enemy people, like Hittites, come and be with him. And Philistines joined him. And so he had this ragged bunch of guys with him. The 
But he didn't bemoan the fact that they were a ragged bunch. He took it as an opportunity to train them. He didn't allow them to continue lives of criminality. In fact, they were trained to do good. They joined him in protecting the, sh- the sheep of all these uh, people in the wilderness there. In fact, uh, one example was when uh, Saul was out to get him and David and his men were hiding and they were in a cave and Saul didn't realize they were in this cave. And so Saul comes in that same cave and he actually ends up sleeping and the men say to David, here's your chance, David. You're the anointed king. This guy is sitting right there. You can just slit his throat and you're a king. And David refused to do that. He said, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. The Lord's anointed, Saul? The guy that's trying to kill him? David refused to push the will of God into something or over a situation. He refused to try and make things happen for his calling. And he said, no, I won't do that. That example and other things in the wilderness was examples of how he took this ragged, rough bunch of men and he turned them into what became known as David's mighty men, warriors that were fiercely loyal to him and uh, appreciated Dave deeply. And David waited for God to move. 15 years or so later, he heard Saul had been killed in a battle. And David knew, ah, my door is open. God did this. I didn't kill him. And so David moved into his next chapter, David the king. And he went to the city of Hebron, which was near the wilderness area. And there, the grateful citizens who knew how he had been protecting their sheep all these years, they gladly crowned him king. And then after quite a struggle, it took a while and a lot of difficulty, the rest of the tribes of Israel then also came and crowned him king. And when David became king, his genius came through. A genius that he learned, though, in 15 years of difficulty. But we, feed, we hear the record of David and what he did. Well, The obvious first one was that he was a military genius. The first thing he did was put together the Israelite army. He had a bodyguard of 600 mighty warriors. 30 of the mighty men from the wilderness that were his closest buddies. And then there were three that were the awesome, legendary guys. He recruited soldiers from the tribes of Israel, 24,000 men were recruited for each month. So 24 each month. Everybody had to serve a month a year. And so we had this rotating um, 24,000 soldiers and he augmented them by hiring mercenaries from Crete and even from Phyllis, Philistia, which shows how genius he was because with this power he was able to actually have taxes come into Israel. He was actually able to expand the borders of Israel, demand tribute from all the caravans coming by, and money began to pour into Jerusalem. And we see that he was an administrative genius. One of the things he also knew was that these 12 tribes of Israel, they tended to fight amongst themselves. 
especially two of them who thought they were the leading, the leading tribes. There was Judah, who thought they should be the leading one, and Ephraim. And David knew, if I pick a capital city in either of their territories, it's going to come across like I'm favoring that tribe, and that's not going to go over good. And his genius came through. He looked around, and he found a little city that Israel had never conquered. There was still kind of a little enclave of Jebusites that lived there. And David conquered that city and called it the city of David. It didn't belong to Judah, didn't belong to Ephraim. It's the city of David. And the new name came, Yerushalayim, the foundation of peace. And so he could say, this is the neutral capital for everybody. And from this neutral place, he truly became the king of all Israel. And he centralized administrative controls and put it into, into great benefits. He was a spiritual giant too. He recognized that it's not just military things that make a country. There is, there is a character and there is a faith that needs to unify people. And he centralized Israel's heart by bringing the Ark of the Covenant right to a plot of land, right beside his palace. He bought the plot of land and he put the, temp, he put the tabernacle there with its special tent. And he set up a permanent choir of Levitical singers under the music minister called Asaph. Now there's a little plug for you music majors. Important leadership. Paul, uh, David saw right away have to have a music minister to lead this part of it. He took the rest of the Levites, about 38,000 eventually, and he appointed them into various responsibilities that were administrative, but they were part of the spiritual tone of Israel. And then he organized the priests as well into rotating groups of people that would come and serve at the tabernacle. Now, David was not content, didn't think it was right that he should be living in this beautiful palace that he made. And there's God's tent over here, like he's living in a tent. And so he began to pray and seek the Lord. He said, I would like to build a proper, proper temple for you. And in his praying, he got a vision of what this temple could be. And the scripture says he, he drew it out. It was like a blueprint. And when that temple later did get built, it became one of the wonders of the ancient world. Coming out of David's heart to serve. And he was a songwriter too. He and Asaph kind of teamed up and they wrote more songs and they put it into a book. And that book is in your Bible. It's called the Psalms. We are still singing David's songs to this day. What an amazing story of rags to riches. He was at the zenith of his power. Legendary. But you know, here's something I really appreciate about the Bible. Is the Bible is not a book of legends. It's not a, a book of heroes that were just perfect. It's actually a very realistic, honest, transparent record of people. And that included David. Because even though he had done so well, he was imperfect. 
And his most glaring failure was his lust after another man's wife. His adultery with her. His arranging for the murder of her husband. And the guy was Uriah the Hittite, one of his 30 best buddies. A deep betrayal of these men that had stood with him all these years. And it's just incomprehensible. How could this happen? Well, first of all, a little context. In ancient times, kings did stuff like this. If you're the king, you get whatever you want. You want that woman? You get her. You want to get rid of that guy? You get rid of him. This is normal king behavior of his day. But this is not the kind of king that God wants in Israel. But how in the world could somebody who'd done so well and had proven his faith to God so well fall like this? Well, as I look at the story and enter into it, here's a few things I observe. And that is, positional authority can shield you from accountability. He was king. Could do whatever he wants. So who questions the king? Who questions the CEO of the company? Who questions the president or the lead pastor? Positional authority can shield you from accountability. The other thing that shields you from accountability is success. If you've done really well, well, who's going to question that? Who's going to upset that apple cart? And so success can shield you from accountability. And then there's a third thing I notice about this. And that is, it happened in David's second half. He was, they estimate, he was in his, like, around 60 when this happened. A life of faithful service, anointing by God, blessing and success, and then he does this. You know, there are some unique temptations that come in the second half of life, which is why I started the Crest Leadership Program. When I realized how many leaders stumble in the second half, in the scriptures, and today, can you think of people today who were well into their second half, seemingly successful, and then they blow it? A depressing list of our own time right now. We need to help people finish well. Because if there is ever a time when we could serve well, it's in the second half, actually. So... The question is, well, then why in the world, given this, why in the world does the Bible call David a man after God's own heart? And I suggest to you, the reason it, he is, is because of how he handled failure. The prophet Nathan came to him and pointed his finger right at him. David the king could have ordered his head cut off. But he didn't. He humbled himself. 
and he admitted it. And then expressed his penance by writing two more songs, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, written from the heart of, of repentance. And to this day, they serve as prayers for people who have really screwed up. If you've really messed up in your life and you're sorry, turn to Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 and pray these ancient prayers and it'll give voice to the regret of your heart and it'll be a way of speaking to God and have finding that God forgives. Now David was forgiven but sometimes the consequences of major screw-ups will, will follow us. And Nathan the prophet said, speaking on behalf of God, now therefore, the sword will never depart from your house, David, because you so despised me and you took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. And from this point on, David had some real difficulties within his family, within his leadership. And I observe as I look at this story, what what unfolded from all this was that when a leader fails, it somehow kind of grants a kind of permission to other people to fail, to do the same thing you did. And David had unlawfully taken a man's wife. And so one of his sons did the same thing. Amnon decided to take the girl he was lusting after. It happened to be a sister. He rapes his sister. This is horrendous immorality. And David does nothing. He's just silent. Like what? Well, David had lost his moral authority. It's pretty tough to go to someone and say, hey, you're not allowed to do that when he had just done it. He was silenced. Two years later, one of David's other sons who was so incensed about this injustice and David's inability or unwillingness to do anything, Absalom decided, well, I'm going to avenge that injustice, and he murders Abnon. Amnon. And that just brought turmoil into the royal family. Horrendous time. David had to flee the palace, and then Absalom had to flee, and then you look, read the details. It's incredible. And here, folks, here is the temptation for younger leaders. And your younger leaders... So listen up. The temptation is to get critical of older leaders who are imperfect. And by the way, all leaders are imperfect. You can get critical. And you get impatient. Why aren't they doing something? And then you get impulsive. And you do something but it often does not turn out well. It didn't turn out well for Absalom. He had to flee the palace, and he ended up dead. And David ended up grieving for another son 
who's gone. But you know, perhaps the greatest hurt or disappointment for David was that his ultimate dream was denied him. He wanted to build this temple. He had the blueprint in his mind. He had gathered all the resources to do it. It was ready to start building. And prophet said no. That must have been really tough for David. But he didn't resist it. But soon after that, it says he died. What a story. Eh? There's lots more detail in there. And as you're reading your Bibles, I encourage you, enter into these stories. They're full of really good lessons. But as I look at the life of David, and as, as I look at you as students here at Prairie, these stories are written in the Bible so that you will learn from them, so that you don't screw up like that. And I want to suggest to you from David's life that you, like him, will experience three tests in your life. And the first one is, how do you act as a young leader under another leader who is imperfect, maybe even bad? How do you act as a young leader? That's the first test of your character. And there's temptations right along that line. And then I suggest to you, there's another test that's going to come to you. And that is the test of success. How will you handle success? How will you handle the accolades of people who just think you're marvelous? There are some temptations that come with that. And then, how will you handle the test of failure when you do drop the ball? How do you respond? These are three big character tests that you, in your lifetime, are going to encounter. And God has warned you and told you through the story of David, watch out for these things, learn from them, and don't repeat those mistakes. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the honest stories in the Bible. The situations that people got into. The way they responded. And sometimes they did good. Sometimes they did bad. But Lord, what great instruction for us. And I pray that the word of God will dwell richly in these students. That they will turn to the scriptures and read them well, read them personally, enter the stories and learn vicariously through these stories. I pray that you would raise up some young Davids and some young women leaders who, like in Israel, were judges of Israel, 
Deborah, others. Lord, I pray that your anointing will come on your people here and that they will live wisely under the instruction of the Holy Spirit and the scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen.